This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. It's episode 29 of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. I'm Ray Kub. I'm Marcus in the Darkest. And we're about to go down to that crossroads and find where the blues began, I guess, and where it came from before it began. As always, the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll is brought to you by our good friends at Crooked Eye Brewery with a cure for what ails you since 2014, and we thank them for their support. We are part of the Pantheon Podcast Network, one of many great podcasts on Pantheon. Check out their uh, distribution hub, and you can find them on uh, pretty much every phone in the world, I think, at this point. And uh, that's why we seem to have more listeners lately for our podcast, and we thank everyone at Pantheon and all of you for um, helping to make that a reality. A lot of you have been there since the first episode, and we thank you all for listening. To the imbalanced history of rock and roll. You asked, where do we start? I think we start at the end. Um, the end of what? Well, the end of our story. Uh, Robert Johnson is a central figure in the blues. He was born in 1911, which is after most of the other people who are in our story today. Uh, he died uh, under unusual circumstances, which we'll get to, right? Yes, crazy story. In uh, August of 1938... And one of the things that we both realized is that when it comes to rock and roll, that would make him the original charter member of the 27 Club because he was 27 years old when he died. A lot has been talked about when it comes to the legends uh, surrounding Robert Johnson and the deal he supposedly made with the devil. But I think we should probably talk about Johnson and maybe one or two other early progenitors of the blues on this episode before uh, we dig into the, the previous history. Johnson had a really tough life, like a lot of people did in Mississippi a uh, uh, hundred years ago. Um, okay, Wikipedia put it this way. He was an American blues singer, songwriter, and musician. His landmark recordings in 1936 and 1937 display a combination of singing, guitar skills, and songwriting talent that has influenced later generations of musicians. Johnson's poorly documented life and death have been given rise to much legend. 
The one most closely associated with his life is that he sold his soul to the devil at a local crossroads that would be near Clarksdale, Mississippi. To achieve, spot. Yes, to achieve musical success. He is now recognized as a master of the blues, particularly as progenitor of the Delta blues style. And that's where Wikipedia started. And they just scratched the surface, Marcus. They really did just scratch the surface when it comes to what happened in Robert Johnson's life and career. Still, even though we have dug into it and so many other people have dug into it in a insanely deeper way, there is still a ton that is absolutely unknown. Yeah, with a lot of what I call blank spaces, and we we find that um, in the period before Robert Johnson reemerges uh, as a fully formed blues player, because he was known, but not known for particularly for his great playing ability early in his life. He was a clod. He wanted to play the worst way, and his his life was horrible. I mean, his. He, he was a, a sharecropper farmer. Mm-hmm. Um, his wife went uh, with child to her grandmother's house to give birth. While he worked. While he worked and wrapped things up and followed up. But then he went on a walkabout. And at the end of the walkabout, he gets there and he finds out that his wife died in childbirth and the baby died as well. And all he wants to do is just play guitar and pass the time. I mean, his heart, he was broken, I think. He was completely broken. His... Uh her parents, who were very religious uh, Southern Baptists at that time, blamed it on the devil's music that he was playing and right. said that the devil had killed their baby and their grandchild. And so there you have that conflict, and that brings in the Pentecostal Baptist conflict, which you right. see two different styles emerge in music that are influential in rock music and coming roll. out of those yeah. two different areas. Well, you also bring up something very interesting that we were talking about the other day, and that is uh, the inference that this music or that music is the devil music. And uh, it has been everything since Robert Johnson and probably before has been labeled that way by people who don't understand a certain genre or sound or feeling in music. And he, he, he had to deal with a lot of that, too. Oh, absolutely. But so did all the blues musicians before him. His pro, the, his influences, the people that he wanted to be were called as whatever, servants of Satan or whatever for playing that wicked music. And the devil was walking side by side. And it's crazy. I mean, the term rock and roll came from about the late 1800s, early 19s was slang for fucking. And there you go. So let's get to rocking and rolling. Let's get to rocking and rolling. But yeah. So there's this period of time and and Sunhouse, the legend Sunhouse is in this story as well. He has to um, because he's one of the people that put forth the, the the that Robert Johnson had made a deal with the devil. And I don't know whether he told that story before Johnson died or after, but I do know that he was the one who kind of helped to solidify that. And Sunhouse was one of Robert's heroes. He was a little older, and he would hang around, and he was one of the guys who uh, uh, noticed that one time they hadn't seen Robert in a long time, and we talked about how he wandered all over Mississippi for, what, a year or two? A year and a half. Yeah. And it's kind of crazy. Think about this. Mississippi at that time had more lynchings than any other state yeah. in the nation. I mean, there's so many lynchings that we don't even know about that no. happened of undocumented people 
or people that are documented whose records just disappeared. And so these people were lynched. They disappeared. She got a mortgage on my body and a lean on my soul. I'm going to Rodale, gonna take my ride up by my side. I'm going to Rodale, gonna take my ride by my side. We can steal Bell House, baby, cause it's on the riverside. How this guy wandered through Mississippi with a guitar by himself without getting lynched or without being harmed, but then comes back a guitar virtuoso. I know, it raises a lot of questions. And of course, well, here's it one makes of them. Sense. Here's one of them, okay? Uh, during that time between when Sunhouse and his his buddies last saw Robert Johnson, it was a long time, a year, year and a half. Is it just possible, just practice, practice, practice for a year or so when they didn't see him, that he was just out there practicing and that he really just would sit and play by the side of the road? If he saw trouble coming down the road, he'd maybe he'd jump off into the into the woods or whatever to avoid uh, coming across anybody from the KKK, whatever whatever the trouble could be, right? Yep. Maybe he just did that. Maybe he just practiced. Or That's what I think. May, I do too. But Sunhouse swore that Robert Johnson told him that at that crossroads, there's a famous, there's a landmark there now. It's outside of Clarksdale, Mississippi, mm-hmm. that uh, Johnson met this shadowy figure, the devil, and said uh, he'd make him a deal. I'll take your soul, but I'll give you whatever you want. And he said, I want to be able to play this guitar and and be a master of the blues, right? So the word is the devil tuned up the guitar, played a few notes, handed back to him, and suddenly Johnson was able to play. Now, that seems pretty damn remarkable and far-fetched in any way you look at it realistically, right? What does seem more possible is that Johnson practiced. And he, and he played where he could. Played till his fingers bled every day. And then came back when he walks into that place where Sun House is playing and walks in. Then, you know, it makes sense a little bit more where there would be a, a, a definitely marked improvement in his ability to play. Because before that, like you said, he was just plodding along. He could barely play chords and stuff. And he had super long fingers. And I was watching a documentary on Netflix about the Crossroads and Robert Johnson And they said that when he came back and played, he strutted into that bar for the first time after that year and a half of being away on his walkabout, he added a seventh string to his guitar. Yeah, there was some legend about that, too. And I don't know what the whole story was. I don't know the whole story because they didn't go into details, but I would be curious to know more. Keith Richards only has five strings on his. It's good. But still, I mean, I know. It's, what's up with that? And I still want to know what happened during that year and a half. I would love to know. And there's people there are people who know who have that information who haven't come forward yet or who haven't been able to pass that legend on or something hasn't been found. But so something all this happens, will be though. found. Something will be found. So all this happens. We'll, we'll go looking for it. Because that's Hell what we yes. do. I would go on. So that. all this happens, and all of a sudden he's getting pretty popular as a player. And in uh, 1936, he goes to find this guy H.C. Spire. Uh, he was a, a businessman, uh, had a, a store in town there in Jackson, a talent scout. Um, he put uh, Johnson in touch with a guy named Ernie Orte, 
who uh, was a salesman for the uh, ARC label group, and we've heard about them. Uh, they put a lot of people's records out. Johnson gets introduced to Don Law to record his first sessions, uh, the first of only really a couple sessions that he would have in his life. It was in San Antonio, Texas, uh, November 23rd through the 25th in 1936. They even have it marked, room 414 of the Gunter Hotel, uh, Brunswick Records set up an ad hoc little studio recording set up. Johnson had three days of sessions, and during that time he played 16 songs, and, a co- and I guess there were alternate takes. Some of those later made the light of day. And there was a, an odd 41. situation. If you if you see any of the artwork depicting it, um, or I don't think it was a photo, but it might have been. There's two photos known of Robert Johnson. I, I, I saw one of the, one is the, the portrait that we see. Yeah. But I saw an artist representation of the studio set up in this hotel for this session, and Johnson is facing the wall, which has been uh, noted and testified uh, to by people. Said some people said, well, maybe he was shy and stuff like that. But uh, Ry Cooter, uh, you know Ry Cooter, Ry Cooter, he and I was slouch on the slide guitar himself. Nope. Um, it was um, he said in the notes for the King of the Delta Blues singers, uh, but Cooter put it forth that it might have been what they call corner loading, uh, where you face in the corner against two walls to help add some power to the voice. Not that Johnson, from all the recordings that we do have, really needed much help with uh, with that. But you know, we're talking about all about acoustics and just a, a microphone or two. Yeah, tops. How they were able to capture his sound, his feel, the way they did is remarkable. And the fact that we're able to feel the music the way we do, if it would, if it was done any worse, I don't it know if the blues it would have be. Lasted. Yes. Yes. Well, it's, 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 it's what it added to rock and roll because you realize this is towards the end of his life. But in those sessions there uh, in San Antonio, he did Come On In My Kitchen, Kind Hearted Woman Blues, mm-hmm. I Believe I'll Dust My Broom, and The Crossroad Blues. And he he did a devil song. What's that? There's a song about the devil, too, like the devil blues or something like that in his repertoire. Well, the two tracks that were released, and they did them on 78s, you know, double-sided 78s in those days. It was the Terraplane Blues backed with Last Fair Deal Gone Down. They were the only recordings uh, that, that he would live to hear. Then he went to Dallas. And did another session with Don Law, again, a makeshift studio uh, at the Warner Brothers building. That was June 19 and 20, 1937. Uh, again, Brunswick had set everything up for him to do this uh, recording. Uh, Eleven records from this session would be released the following year. Uh, he did two takes of most of the songs while he was doing that. But it was unusual then, but they recorded everything. They didn't just do the t- the good keep the good takes. They recorded everything. Oh, yeah. And... Uh, Beer's a pretty interesting character himself. Um, so he ran this store uh, uh, in a black neighborhood, and so he was in touch with the community and the culture. He worked as a scout for uh, companies like OK and Victor, uh, Columbia, Vocalion, Decca, and Paramount, which turned out to be one of the biggest-selling blues labels in this era of the blues. That was an integral part of the process to getting music out back then. He introduced the, the likes of... Uh, Robert Johnson and Sunhouse and Charlie Patton and Skip James and a whole lot more. But oh, yeah. now the other guy, Don Law, was a, he was English born, but he was an American record producer. And he did those. He produced those those recordings as the head of country uh, music for Columbia Records. Believe it or not, they put it in the country division. That's so crazy. But it makes sense. I mean, there's yeah. a, it's Mississippi Delta blues. So there's that country voice and guitar. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. 
And uh, some of his other acts that he worked with and was famous for uh, breaking were Bob Wills and Flats and Scruggs and Lefty Frizzell, people like that. Johnny Cash, you might have heard of him. Oh, yeah. Man, I got a Maybe. lot of Columbia Johnny Cash in my collection, I'll tell you that much. Nice. Well, the thing is, the legend of Johnson had already begun because he'd become uh, what he wanted to be. He could get gigs at all the right roadhouses, and he was playing, and he, he was living. I'm the man that rode When I should go hanging on a tree the juke joints. He was playing the juke joints in the circuits yeah. where he couldn't play any white theaters. No. no At that not time, then. there was no... Not in the 1930s in white this White people country. actually had to sneak in to see him yes. at some of the juke joints. And some and did. Yes, and some did. We start to get to the point in his life where he's he's living the life he, he wants to live. Yeah. And if he did make a deal with the devil, I say he got shortchanged because he only had this short period of time uh, where he was... At the top of his game, yeah. his death is uh, uh, chronicled in a lot of different ways, and there's been so much conjecture about it. Mm-hmm. And before we go there, I, I want to talk a little bit more about his music. His influence on one of my favorite guitar players, Eric Clapton, is irrefutable and immeasurable, I think. Mm-hmm. you know, He even did uh, the Me and Mr. Johnson project uh, where he followed it up. It actually had a companion album. was called Sessions for Robert J. where he got everything else out. He really tried to uh, indulge his love of Robert Johnson. And along the way, he played with some really cool cats to make that music, you know. And um, at Clapton, he's just a whole other guy that I yeah, think that doesn't become who he is is unless Robert Johnson was. So I think that was part of what was behind it for him. So many other guitars from that time period and so many other musicians in general, even, I mean, the drummers, the bass players were all influenced by Robert Johnson and his music in some way. His influence carried off to that whole generation, and then we ended up with a British invasion because of people like Robert Johnson. And because what happened between Robert Johnson and... And when they were kids, yep. and who they're listening, which is we'll get to. I think we're gonna we're gonna have to move forward once we do this whole this whole part of the blues, which is the earliest days. Mm-hmm. Now, to give you a, a frame of reference, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame put four of his songs in a set of five hundred of the greatest songs of all time, and you look at what's on there: "Sweet Home Chicago." standard in so many different genres, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Crossroad, yep. Crossroad Blues, which led to Crossroads and uh, from Cream and a million versions of that. Mm-hmm. Hellhound on My Trail, oh, yeah. and Love in Vain, which of course the Stones made famous. Uh, as he well. knew the devil was coming for him when he wrote that song. Oh, he, they said he felt that. They said yep. he felt that. Maybe the deal. he knew the deal was coming due. You better hurry up and get those records in. I'm coming for your soul. 
He died August 16th, 1938, as we mentioned, at the age of 27, the original member of the 27th. The inaugural member. There was so much conjecture about this. So you and I both started digging into it because I I don't know that you can uh, say this is the devil coming to claim his soul in any way. Uh, There are a lot of ways the devil could have made his, his point, so to speak, right? Absolutely. And I think this was more of a case of hubris. Yeah, and I maybe really uh, uh, an over uh, overload of pride yeah. would be the sin that gets him on this one. Absolutely, right? Pr- pride and being a drunk. He was living large. and uh, Sleeping with a lot of ladies. And one of them happened to be a married lady, or at least he was making time with a... Oh, they did? They had an arrangement. Oh, tell me about this. I don't know much about the arrangement. I was reading The History of the Blues by Francis Davis, Mm -hmm. and that and the documentary that I saw on Netflix mentioned something about some sort of arrangement, and it wasn't a big deal until Robert started being an asshole about it. That's what I remember from the notes that I took... And I wasn't fucked up or anything or anything <laughs> like that. So I wasn't wasted when I watched it. But I remember that him being cool. But then he just he became a jerk and just went into full asshole mode. Uh-huh. And it pissed the bar owner off whose wife he was sleeping with. And what happens is he's flirting with her um, and is passed a bottle of liquor not knowing that the husband had screwed the top off. Unsealed bottle. And, and poisoned it. Yep. And I guess his his compadre in the roadhouse that night, who's known as Sonny Boy Williamson, noticed that the seal was broken and knocked it out of his hand. He did. He knocked the bottle out of his hand, and then uh, Robert was like, ah, screw you, I'm going to pick it up and drink it. He's like, how dare you? That was like a $3 bottle of whiskey or something like that. How dare right. you knock it out of my hands? Yeah, don't ever knock a yeah, bottle Yeah, don't ever knock a bottle of whiskey out of my yeah. hands or anything like that. It was considered an ultimate insult yeah. in bar life in those days. But at the same time, you never ever drank from an opened bottle of whiskey if you ordered the bottle you broke the seal yourself yes absolutely that was the rule rule. it is and i think you know it's the same thing with uh, in today's culture you don't leave an unattended drink in a bar there's been too many uh people mickeys and roofies and poisonings what an awful cowardly thing to do so that night johnson's not feeling good and, you know, and I, there's witness to this because of Sonny Boy Williamson. And he's not feeling well. And, and the next, the, the end is actually kind of sketchy. Yeah. But as Over best as days. I've been able to figure out, yeah, he suffered bad. Like for, he like, suffered. Like, they poisoned him good. Like, some sort of hemlock-ass poison. And they didn't something. do an autopsy when they found there was no official cause of death. I had always gotten the, the the jealous husband aspect, but I always had assumed that he was shot for his uh, yeah. his his activities, so to speak. But no, so he spends three days still trying to do his thing, still trying to perform and do his thing. Probably still drinking, but at least the liquor wasn't poisoned. Yeah. But he had something that they figure what might have been strychnine. And uh, they said so that no autopsy was done. He was found dead by the side of the road near a farm, probably making his way to the next thing. There was no death certificate, no record. And they're not even sure where they buried him. And there's markers out there. 
um, uh, at one place, but there it could have been any number of places in that area where they buried people that they didn't know who they were, especially a black person in America uh, in 1938. In it's, Mississippi. It's abysmal in Mississippi, absolutely. The South was awful. So that's how he dies. And it brings into the story uh, Sonny Boy Williamson. He was actually Sonny Boy Williamson, too. By the time Sonny got, he got pretty popular. Uh, started life as Rice Miller and went by the name Little Boy Blue. He started calling himself Sonny Boy Williamson, but he didn't know that there already was a Sonny Boy Williamson in Chicago. So they began, in history, they began referring to him as Sonny Boy Williamson, too. And he's quite a character in and of himself. Uh, uh, he's one of the guys that got me and a lot of the 60s and 70s guys into uh, this wave of the American blues, before, maybe even before some people discovered Robert Johnson. Um, I have uh, a couple of his albums, um, and it, it's just amazing the difference between the Delta blues and the country blues that we've been talking about is stunning. Uh, he first recorded with Elmore James, a name that becomes even more and more prominent moving forward on Dust My Broom. Um, he did Bring It On Home, the Willie Dixon song. Uh, he was uh, right in the pocket with all those guys, and... There's a lot to dispute about when he was actually born because he was born uh, in 18, uh, well, they're saying 1912, but they're saying he could have been born as, as far back as 1897. There was a lot of disparity about these things, and a lot of the guys kept that information kind of quiet because they didn't want people to know how old they were. And not only that, they didn't have uh, as good a birth certificate records in the rural areas of America exactly. in general, exactly. so it didn't matter who you were. The rural records were not as well kept at that time period. But he started recording for Checker Records in the 30s, and he worked with Big Joe Williams and Elmore James, Robert Lockwood Jr., another legend. Basically, he relocated his life uh, to Arkansas to live with his sister and her husband. Are you ready? Who was Howlin' Wolf, Chester Burnett. No way. Was Sonny Williamson's brother-in-law. So that led to some of his first recordings for trumpet records. And um, the thing about trumpet was is that it would fold in 1955. And as they were breaking up all its assets and selling things off, uh, his records and his contract and everything were sold to Chess Records in Chicago. City blues. The stuff that he was working on was heading in this direction. And it was part of what the rock and rollers would latch on to, including uh, on the album that I have that I listen to all the time. A uh, song he wrote with Elmore James called One Way Out. You might have heard about it. Oh, yeah. The Allman Brothers, of course, making it more famous in the 70s than it was back then. But check out the band for his first album on Chess Records. You know, your label folds and then all the assets get sold and you figure you're in the dustbin, right? No, they broke out the A-Team with Sonny Boy on harmonica, Muddy Waters. Oh, my God. Jimmy Rogers. Are you Otis Spann, Willie Dixon, Robert Jr. Lockwood, and Fred Below on drums. Oh, my goodness. That is a lineup. Uh, that's where he rolled for quite a long time until he died in 1965. And he was one of the guys that a lot of uh, 70s suburban high school kids who were falling in love with the blues discovered and that's how i found them one thing that is a note um remember the fire that they had at uh, universal their storage oh, yeah. facility we need to do an episode on that we will but we can include the story of sonny boy williamson in there too because his work was among those lost in the uh, fire oh, that's so um, devastating yeah. 
Buddy, I want to take a break, but I got a little thing I want to give you here, a little thought on Robert Johnson, who is really the big figure here. There were a large number of blues players, men and some very important women who had created the desire for blues mastery in the Robert Johnson versus the Devil legend. While Johnson's clearly the master of the Delta blues, there are other regions as well, Texas, the Piedmont, other country regions birthing and developing their local versions of the blues. Sometimes it was timing that set the genre apart or instrumentation, but the commonality to all of it is the feeling you get when you listen to the blues. Well, Marcus, we can't do this podcast without the help of our good friends at Crooked Eye Brewing, located at 13 East Montgomery Avenue in Hapro, Pennsylvania. Yes, they've got the stuff, man. I'm telling you, the board has been full, and it's really good stuff. A lot of new things, and all your favorites right there at Crooked Eye. Meet Paul and Paul, the brothers-in-law who started Crooked Eye by brewing at home. You get to meet the Crooked Eye crew. Yeah. And they make it fun every night. I really like the staff there. And while you're there, you're going to meet new people, which means you're going to make new friends. That's right. Now, last week I went with two friends of mine who are home brewers, and they met Chief Brewer Jeff Mulherin, who's all excited about what he's been doing to fill the board there at Crooked Eye, always full lately. And he's got a home brewers club that I didn't even know about that meets regularly. So find out about that and all the fun activities at Crooked Eye by going to CrookedEyeBrewery.com, and uh, you'll see Jeff when you stop by. Great brews, great people, and fun times guaranteed. Next time you want a True Craft Brewery experience, stop by for a pint and make it Crooked Eye. Serving nightly in the heart of Hapro, Crooked Eye has the cure for what ails you since 2014, and we thank them for their support here on the podcast. Yes, we do. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. (laughs) Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. It's episode 29 of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. You know, Ray. Tell me. We started with the Crossroads, the Devil Legend, all of that. Mm -hmm. And we've moved on, and we are actually looking back at some of the people who were before Robert Johnson who really made a difference to get us to Robert Johnson. And some of they these, laid the basis for they did. They a lot really of did. what the blues would become in a formal way. I mean, it started uh, out in the fields with uh, people sure. singing and the talented mm-hmm. guys who who were creative with the lyrics, 
often got to be the singers, right? Yeah. And it, and it kind of led to a lot of them being able to fill a, a, a roadhouse with their voice with no amplification, you know, yep. that kind of thing. Yep, and being that they were all very religious people, they were singing in their churches, whether they be Pentecostal, whether they be Baptist churches, there was always singing going on in the churches. So this kind of carried out from there. And the fields, don't forget the fields. Yeah, the fields they were always singing, but it was a different kind of song. If If it went away from the religious song, it would become more of a political song, but done in a subtle way and in a clever way. There's one figure that really made a big difference, and he didn't he didn't live a long life, but he 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 is considered revered by the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He went in in 88. He's in the Louisiana Music Hall of Fame. Uh, he went by the name Lead Belly, uh, born Huddy or Hudy, depending upon how you uh, pronounce it. William Ledbetter. <laughs> he became Lead Belly. Uh, he got his first instrument, which was an accordion from his uncle. Mm hmm. And he actually, even though he's always pictured, the pictures you see of uh, Lead Belly, he has a guitar. He played a lot of different instruments and uh, started to develop his own style of playing. And that's part of what these guys were doing in a vacuum, if you think about it. Uh, There were a lot of saloons and brothels and dance halls in the area they called the Bottoms. He got to start playing Red Light District at 14 years old. Well, here's the funny part. Here's the funny part. They called it the Bottoms in those days in Shreveport. Now these days it's referred to as Ledbetter Heights, which is his last name. Wow. And by the age of 16, because he was playing the red light joints, he had fathered two kids by the age of 16. I did not know that. That is crazy. There's stuff we're learning here on the podcast. I hope you're learning with us. I mean, it's it's insane. And at 12, he left school to work the land. And then he started playing the juke joints in the uh, red light district places at night. And he developed from there. And I guess he was a real natural talent with the music and could play guitar like nobody's business. Well, he had music all around him. While he was in prison, which we discussed prior to this, he was a few times in his life. Once, I think, for shooting his own wife. Was that right? No, for killing a relative over a wife. Oh, okay. It was a complicated life back then. But um, that's where they think he might have first heard uh, Midnight Special, which is a song he would sing a lot often through the years. Midnight Special shines light on me. With uh, John Lomax and his son Alan Lomax, who, if you don't know, were commissioned by the Library of Congress to go out and document uh, these great blues players that they'd heard so much about so that there would be recordings of the music and it would be preserved for future generations not knowing what it might lead to, mm-hmm. but we're glad that they did. Absolutely, yeah. Lead Belly, and he got his nickname supposedly for maybe a couple of reasons. One was that while he was in prison, he could handle the worst moonshine and not get sick, like that, that bathtub moonshine stuff that we... Rock gut. Yeah, rock gut. <laughs> and supposedly was shot in the stomach with a shotgun and still had pellets in his stomach. Those I are the two too. reasons that, that, that could have been why he got his nickname Lead Belly. He was uh, in prison. He got stabbed in the neck in a knife fight, and then he almost Ouch. killed the guy because he got mad. I yeah, mean, this guy all was this was going on, and where he was almost yep. done his he was almost done his sentence, and all this is happening. Mm-hmm. And they went to the the governor to intercede on his behalf, and, and actually got him released from prison. Um, they came down initially to do some recordings, and they had the the, the crude uh, metal metal disc, which was like a a, a, a barrel, yeah. and they would cut it into that, and then they could transfer it 
off of there if they could at all. Mm-hmm. And then they came back with better equipment in 34 and recorded his stuff for the Library of Congress. Mm-hmm. And some, some of that is the best documentation there is of his his voice, really. Yeah, yeah one of the um, when he got out of prison one time, he wrote a song for Governor Pat Morris of Texas to pardon him. And so because he took the time to write the governor a song, the governor pardoned him on his last day in office. You know, things like that do happen throughout the... Uh throughout the, the history of time when it comes to pardons, yep. doesn't it? Yeah, and because he had big hands, he was a 12-string guitar player, which was very rare for the bluesmen at that time. He was one of the few that played a 12-string. And it was the his, I think, in the end, his instrument of choice because he could get so much out of it yep. for the songs he was singing. He took part in something here in the Philadelphia area that was called the um, Smoker Group, a modern language association, meaning at Bryn Mawr College uh, in 1934. Lomax had kind of hooked him up with that, uh, the dad, because he had had a lecturing engagement. And to be at Bryn Mawr uh, at this stage of his life, it, it introduced him, to his music, to so many people. And we talked a little bit about the dynamic of the intellectual and uh, moderate to liberal people being exposed to the blues initially as part of cultural experience or curiosity and then they being the people who would be the ones leading the charge in America for promoting these guys uh, this is one of those first cases where it helped and uh, they were they were all wanting to write about the uh, the singing convict was the the, na- the basis of the articles and uh, Time magazine uh, actually had uh, newsreels that they did and included them and that got him in front of other audiences who didn't know they just had heard of then they saw and heard. Who's this Lead Belly character? Oh, my goodness. He can play. Oh, my God. He can sing. And he recorded a bunch of stuff, and he was on all the blues labels and stuff that that you'd want to be on. Nirvana did a tribute to him on the Unplugged record. Yes, they did. Where Did You Sleep Last Night? In the Pines. And and it's a brilliant song. His version is haunting and scary and dark and beautiful all at the same time. And I think Nirvana did a brilliant job capturing it in that moment. Yeah, and it showed that they knew know more than just about where they live you know it showed that they all studied their roots my girl my girl don't lie to me tell me when did you sleep last night in the pond in the pond by the sun don't ever shine i wish you would all night too In the pond, in the pond, where the sun don't ever shine, I wish you would not there were some things that happened for Lead Belly. I don't want I know we're talking a bit about him, but I think it's worth it uh, to spend the time. He went back to prison again in 1939, and then after he got out, uh, young Lomax Allen uh, took him under his wing, and uh, after he got out, he appeared regularly on his uh, and Nicholas Ray's groundbreaking radio show on CBS Radio Network. It was huge back then. It was called Back Where I Come From, so it was broadcast nationwide, uh, and he was getting into the. the 
that kind of a, a circle. Wow. He was playing in New York, and there he became part of the folk music uh, blues scene that uh, introduced him to Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee. He met Woody Guthrie and young Pete Seeger, and they're all performers who were on that radio show with him, and that's where he started to fit into the the folk revival and the folk song uh, circle and was accepted by them. It's weird because I guess around the same time that Lou Gehrig made his famous speech about having what we call Lou Gehrig's disease forever, ALS, uh, the same disease uh, struck lead belly. He had Lou Gehrig's? Yeah. Because he died at 60. He lived for a while. Yeah. He lived for a long time with it like Lou Gehrig did. Well, he he, he lived, but I don't know how long after his diagnosis. Okay. But, um, I did not know that he died of ALS. I didn't know until we were starting to do the research here about that. Yeah. And there's one other thing that was very key, and this isn't going to be too surprising, that Bob Dylan credits Lead Belly for getting him into folk music because of the recordings, whether it's on the radio broadcast he heard, Dylan credited Lead Belly. So thank you, Lead Belly, for giving us Bob Dylan and all the great music. Robert Zimmerman. There's another character, though. A lot of these guys were born in the 1800s, you know. Um, uh, born in 1893 or 99, they're not sure. Or 94, 95, 96, yeah. or 97, or 98, or even 1889. Who knows? It was Walter E. Furry Lewis. Well, I'm going to get some old Furry Lewis's blues tonight. I've been playing these blues for about six or something years. One of my old favorites. Babe, I'm going with. country blues he was from memphis uh he was one of the few uh blues musician in the 20s to be brought out of retirement because he was getting up there and he got a whole new career during the folk blues revival again in the 1960s he was exposed to all kinds of music in his youth and as he traveled, including Bessie Smith, he had a lot of guys that he traveled with. Uh, he, he eventually got tired of uh, the travel and the road and took a permanent job in 1922 uh, as a street sweeper for Memphis, the city of Memphis, which he worked till he was uh, retired in 1966. But that allowed him to continue to perform in Memphis, which is where he started to make a lot of influence on the younger generation from his little spot down there. And uh, he was a featured performance in the Memphis Blues Caravan in 72. Look at the lineup for that. You've got him. You've got Booker White, Sleepy John Estes. you got Hammy Nixon and Memphis Piano Red. All these guys, most Vincent. And he opened twice for the Rolling Stones, by the way, and performed on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And these are the things they started to find out when we started looking around. It is the imbalanced history of rock and roll. And we are looking into Robert Johnson and the progenitors of the blues. One of them is a woman that we talked about in our Foundations of Rock and Roll episode, Ma Rainey. Definitely a progenitor of the blues as we knew it, influencing performers who later became popular, especially Bessie Smith, who performed with her. Then you've got Bessie herself, Bessie Smith, the empress of the blues. She was probably the most popular female blues singer of the 1920s and 30s and was on Columbia Records and was uh, widely recorded and respected and 
I, I suggest if you don't know her music that you go and check her out online. I'm sure you can just type in Bessie Smith and it'll pop right up. It's mighty strange without a doubt. Nobody knows you when you down and out. I mean when you down and out. Basically, she was the queen of the 1920s. But she died a tragic death, too. And like I know, it, a recurring it, theme in the blues, don't you think? Yeah, it seems like it. I mean, some of the songs were very sad, very heartbreaking about hard life, tough life. But you also had some very happy songs and some very good songs as well that were very loving. So Bessie Smith, 1937, she's so popular. She's had a crazy life. Remember, uh, we were talking about her lover, Richard Morgan, who accepted her bisexual tendencies, and they became a couple for the rest of her life, which ended in September. Uh, They're driving on Route 61 uh, from Memphis to Clarksdale, and uh, Richard Morgan, her lover's driving, misjudged the speed of a slow-moving truck. Uh, Tire marks at the scene, they say, suggest that he tried to avoid the truck by driving around its left side and he hit the rear of the truck at a high speed and Bessie's arm was hanging out the window and her arm was sheared off. It was a horrific scene. Uh, she ended up at the uh, Afro-American Hospital in Clarksdale where they amputated her right arm and uh, she never regained consciousness. Uh, I guess she'd lost too much blood. Her grace was unmarked until Janis Joplin paid to have a marker put there in 1970. I don't know. It's a very sad tragedy because she was the empress and God knows what else would have gone on after that. I don't know. Look at, look at the, Listen to the songs that she has. Downhearted Blues, Baby Won't You Please Come Home. Taint nobody's business if I do. These are American standards. Yeah. Uh, empty bed blues and uh, the all-time favorite of mine is Nobody Knows You When You're Down and Out, which helped spark interest in her during the American folk music revival because people like Odetta and Dave Van Rock were playing it. Also, drum roll please, Nina Simone hit number 23 on the Billboard R&B chart in 1960 with a version of Nobody Knows You When You're Down and Out, your girl Nina Simone. My girl Nina. It's Robert Johnson and the progenitors of the blues here on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. We're, ge- we're going long this week, buddy. Yeah, we are. We are but we can't really go without on. talking about Big Bill Brunsey. Here's a guy who is larger than life, man. Uh, made himself a fiddle from a cigar box when he was a kid. Uh, came from the world of spirituals and folk songs. Played country blues. He urbanized the blues with themes and, and song content. And then in the 50s, later returned to country blues as part of the American folk revival. I got the key to the highway And I'm built out and bound to go I'm gonna leave there running Cause walking is most too slow But Brunzi was all about uh, big life. He, he, he opened the doors for bluesmen to tour in Europe. He got critical praise and standing ovations over there and got other people to come over and and in that became a regular trip over for people like Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee and Pete Seeger and and, and, and Muddy and all the gang from Chess. John Lennon of the Beatles also cited Brunzi as an early influence but he recorded 224 songs in a, in a 15 year career and that's a pretty, pretty amazing uh, output for that time. Next up on our hit parade is Alberta Hunter. You remember her? Mm-hmm. We talked to her about the foundation of women in rock and roll. Did her had her career? Thought it was over, right? And uh, became a nurse yeah. and worked as a nurse for years before uh, resuming her career in 1977. It's just one of those one of those names that comes up again and. 
along with Bessie Smith, she was gay or bisexual. Uh, and that no, was a, no, a taboo in, in those Ooh. days. And it caused a lot of personal problems that but, caused her to um, shy away from the spotlight, I guess. I think what's most impressive about Alberta is the fact that she was able to take the money that she made from her work, yeah. save it up, being able to put enough away to pay for an education, become a nurse, and then do what she wanted to do until she... And she probably sang a lot, went to church, sang, did all of that, and continued to sing throughout her life. I and mean, then she got back into it. Yeah, and then she got back into it and just fine-tuned her chops again. Our next uh, person that we want to talk about here, we don't have a birth date for Charlie Patton. Um, he died April 28, 1934. Uh, Delta Blues was his thing. 1800s. He's, yeah, oh, definitely. And they're just not sure when. 70s, uh, 60s. He is considered by many to be the father of the Delta Blues because he obviously was before Robert Johnson. And he's one of those guys that Robert Johnson looked up to when he was trying to make his way to be in the hot gun. A lot of conjecture about his mixed heritage. He was part African-American and uh, part we think we were talking about it. We think Cherokee. Cherokee. We, he definitely looks. They said they weren't sure if his, his ancestry included Mexican American or Cherokee American. Um, Some but, sort of native indigenous to the uh, land. He um, his ability to uh, throw his voice. We talked about the power of the voice gained from maybe singing in church. Mm-hmm. That he uh, influenced largely uh, people like Howlin' Wolf and and, yep. and with his hollering kind of sound. You know, he was a big influence to Jimi Hendrix too with his guitar playing. He was the guy who played behind his back and all that stuff. That's right. That's right. Then we get back. To the Mississippis. There were two guys who went by the uh, name Mississippi. John Hurt, who was born in 1893, uh, self-taught, worked as a sharecropper, started playing dances and parties like so many guys did, and he had a great finger-picking style that people loved. Uh, Made sides for OK Records, a division of Columbia in the 20s. Nothing really worked out for him as far as like having a big hit record that he could, you know, buy the farm with the money or anything like that. They located him... In 1963, and they uh, two guys, Dick Spotswood and Tom Hoskins, and they wanted them to move to D.C. so they could record them for the Library of Congress in 64. It was part of the American folk blues revival where it was all tied together, and that uh, really helped to, people to rediscover a lot of the blues men of John Hurt's era. Uh, he played in the uh, university and coffeehouse circuit. He played at folk festivals and uh, things like that. And uh, was a real great spokesman for the Delta Blues and recorded albums for Vanguard Records. Uh, his songs have also ended up on albums by Dylan, Dave Van Ronk, Jerry Garcia, Beck. Police officer, how can it be? You can arrest everybody but Cool Staggerly. That bad man, Cool Staggerly. Doc Watson. What? Talk about a wide variety. Uh, Taj Mahal, Bruce Coburn, David Johansson. Now, it was his performance at the 1963 Newport Folk Festival that caused his star to rise at the time, and he ended up being uh, on the Johnny Carson Show, The Tonight Show. Oh, my God. The other Mississippi is born a little later, Mississippi Fred McDowell. Uh, parents were farmers, uh, but they died when he was a kid, and he, he started playing the guitar at the age of 14, maybe out of necessity. He played dances in the uh, Tennessee area where he was born and raised, uh, and he wanted to change. He didn't like plowing fields, so he moved to Memphis in 1926, and he's considered a Delta Blues singer, but a lot of people really say he might be the first North Hill Country Blues artist, and he lived in the Hill Country, and 
and uh, then he would move. He later would move uh, uh, east to the uh, Delta region and uh, had some really, uh, I'd say, famous uh, people who really wanted to push him. Uh, to get him his name out there, um, the Stones uh, on Sticky Figures. Did you got to move? And Fred said that he really liked that, but he was in that era was most famous for saying, and I quote, "I don't play no rock and roll." He didn't mind associating with the guys, like having the Stones mm. help pay the rent off of that record, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, but he did an album actually called I Don't Play No Rock and Roll, recorded it down there in Jackson, and it, it was his first record where he actually had an electric guitar on it. But by oh. then, I guess he was fully caught up in it. Uh, he died in 72 at the age of 66 and um, had an unmarked grave, I guess, for a while. But Bonnie Raitt saw the changing that. Uh, she was friends with Fred, made sure there was a Mississippi, Mississippi Blues trail marker in Como where he lived and that his grave is properly marked. We're almost there, but look at this. I mean, this is just crazy, some of these tie-ins and some of these influences and the way the paths sort of cross, or if they don't cross, they sort of weirdly circumvent each other. Or run parallel. A lot of parallel yes. lines here, too. And there are a lot of but parallel lines. Straight parallel lines. No, they're, kind of they're crooked curvy. as hell. Yeah. <laughs> well, you got to go back to, again to 1890, September 1893. Um, Lemon Henry Jefferson. Uh, we always thought Blind Lemon was a made up name, but he was Blind Lemon Henry Jefferson. Uh, he was the youngest of seven. Uh, started playing guitar in his early teens and uh, playing at picnics and parties like a lot of guys. He was a street musician. Uh, playing in the East Texas towns down by the corner, you know. But in the early 1910s, Jefferson started traveling to, to Dallas, specifically to the Deep Ellum section of, of Dallas, which he would become associated with. Where he met and played with Lead Belly. Lead Belly was his guide or something yeah. like that around Texas for a while. He, he would. He would help him get around yeah. town. And he had other people who, who took to him because he was such a great performer. In return, he learned tricks from Blind Lemon Jefferson. That was his payoff or something like yeah, that. Yeah, they traded licks and stuff. Yeah. So, so there he is, right? He's learning from Blind Lemon. And he also starts teaching this kid, Aaron Thibault Walker. Now, the middle name became the first name. And he became T-Bone Walker. That's right. Blind Lemon Jefferson taught T-Bone Walker how to play. And T-Bone's style would influence the three kings of the blues and so many other people and help to develop the sound of the Texas blues. That's why I'm putting forth the idea that Blind Lemon Jefferson is really, if not the, one of the founding fathers of the Texas blues. I ain't got no mama now. And it was a very different style than the Delta Blues. The Delta Blues were a lot right. muddier and dirtier, and 
and the instrumentation was a little more laid back and country feeling. It was cleaner in Texas. They played a lot cleaner, I guess, was one of the ways that it's been described. Later, that would become the hallmark of the sound of the Texas blues. They was elect when they went electric because they wanted it to be as clean and nasty as they could. Oh yeah, he sold records. Blind Lemon sold records, Uh, but he he didn't he didn't. Other than teaching a few guys who ended up being all these important guys, he didn't really, you know, take a big influence. And later, you know, he didn't really like lord his spot or place about it, you know. Now, before Jefferson, only a few artists had recorded solo voice and blues guitar. Uh, the first recording of that is recorded to be a guy named Sylvester Weaver in October of 1923 who recorded Longing for Daddy Blues. Now, Jefferson was recording before that, but he was also uh, using another vocalist and another guitarist. Mm. So that's I'd why I'd love he, to hear some of that. I would too. And you got to go, you know what? I went on Spotify, just type in Blind Lemon Jefferson and let it take you away. All it's right. unbelievable. That's what I did the other All day. Because right. I don't have any of his records. I don't either. Um, so uh, there's also the first self-accompanied solo performer of a self-composed blues song was right around that time by a guy named Lee Morse who did the Mailman Blues and I think we know what the Mailman Blues was all about. Yeah, I know we know what Unless you're about. just a t- mailman and you're just tired. Maybe it was about that. I don't think so. But he had a big influence on people like Furry Lewis and Charlie Patton and Barbecue Bob and it was because of popularity of people like Jefferson and Blind Blake and Ma Rainey the Paramount Records that we mentioned earlier in the episode became the company for the blues in the 1920s, the Roaring Twenties. In 1927, he moved to OK Records, and they quickly got him in the studio recording Matchbox Blues and the Black Snake Moan, which is, I mean, that's a legendary blues tune that was reworked by countless artists through the years. Uh, you know, he, he started to have success, and, and also, I almost became like a gentleman of the blues. He lived a, a good life. He... He being blind, he had people who helped him, and he also made a good buck, and they didn't they didn't rob him. So a lot of his music was uh, recorded and re-recorded. But what I noticed when um, I was listening to his music before um, we recorded today was that how much his vo- his vocal tone and his phrasing is reminiscent of Alan Blind Al Wilson of Can Heat, or should I say the other way around? Is it possible the Blind Lemon? was the biggest influence on the Blind Owl when the canned heat broke out in the 60s, just saying. Mm. He died in 1929. That's pretty early in the the story of life at a younger age. And they say it was uh, myocarditis. It's a heart attack, right? But again, no one was paying that close attention to a black man in the city even then, even in Chicago. Uh, He thought the heart attack was brought on after being attacked by a dog. And so there's all these stories. These are the... The legends that nobody can really put their finger on, Marcus. I know. These legends are what make the story of the blues even more exciting and more thrilling and more mysterious. So we got Blind Lemon. Yes. Then we have Arthur Blind Blake. He's in the jailhouse now. He's in the jailhouse now. We got him downtown in jail. No one to go his bail. He's in the Born around 1896, uh, he started playing blues and ragtime, which we really didn't tie into this because it's a whole other story. Oh, yeah, the ragtime. But he did a lot of records for Paramount, sold a lot of records, but they don't know that much about I've never been able to find much about his life. 
Um, but basically, he was born in Florida, which makes him out of place to a lot of this, but ended up in the middle of things. They say that some of the phrasing on his recordings indicates that he may have spent some time along the coast in Georgia, the Gullah dialect, they call it. Oh, and he's the Gullah guy. Huh? Yeah, he's the Gullah guy I read about. Yeah, okay. yeah. Blind Willie McTell, another blind guy, said that uh, his that his real name was Arthur Phelps, not Arthur Blake. But, you know, again, legends that get built around all these guys. Yeah. The thing about Blake that's most worth noting is that he had that finger-picking style that would later be picked up and run with by the Reverend Gary Davis, Yorma Kalkinen, Ry Cooter, uh, John Fahey, Ralph McTell, David Bromberg, Leon Redbone. It's oh, a long geez. list. And, uh, and the title track of Bob Dylan's 1992 album, Good As I've Been to You, is a cover of Blind Blake's You Gonna Quit Me Blues. So Dylan, again, in the equation here mm-hmm. on the imbalanced history of rock and roll. And I mentioned Blind Willie McTell, who was born William Samuel McTeer in 1898. He lived in 1959, though. That's not bad. That's, not bad. that's 100 years. Guys. He played the Piedmont yeah. Blues. He was also a ragtime singer. They came up with some great names for themselves, too. They did. Like, these names are fantastic. Uh, uh, McTell was known for his uh, fluid, syncopated style, uh, part of the Piedmont Blues thing that was pretty well known to people who, they, they say, I know it when I hear it, right? Yeah. He played the slide guitar, but he also was pretty good at ragtime as well. Uh, and he had an influence um, uh, over people like, you know, Charlie Patton. So he learned to play guitar when he was a kid, did recordings in 1927 for Victor Records, which is part of the whole RCA family, right? Oh, yeah. Not the ARC family, the RCA family. Uh, He was one of those guys that got tracked down by John Lomax uh, for the Folk Archives and the Library of Congress later in the 40s. Uh, He was active in the 40s and 50s, playing on the streets of Atlanta uh, with his friend Curly Weaver, did some uh, more recording professionally, and and he didn't get to enjoy the American folk revival. Um, He passed away in 1959 after uh, suffering from diabetes and alcoholism. We got mama, turn your lamp down low. We got mama, turn your lamp down low. Have you got the nerve to drive Papa McTell from your door? There is a song called Blind Willie McTell, and guess who it's written by? Who? Bob Dylan. I was going to say Eric Clapton, <laughs> but yes, it makes sense that Bob Dylan wrote that song. It was recorded in 83 for the album Infidels, but was left off and later released as part of one of his bootleg series recordings. Oh, those bootlegs. We're digging blues. into the blues. We've been talking about a lot of blind guys, and you had a pretty good theory about why bl- so many blind musicians uh, were out there in the South in those days. They couldn't work the fields. They right, couldn't hold a the, job. Right, harder to hold a job, right? So they had good ears and they had great hearing, and many of them had phenomenal singing voices as well. So they lose their sight and their senses of hearing, vocals, and smell and touch are stronger. They're feeling smells um, that are not vision. And because of that, they hear the music, they feel the music a little bit differently. And therefore, it makes sense that they're able to play it so well. After we were talking, I was like, you know what? I bet that's what it is. I bet that's one of the reasons why. Marcus, we've been talking for a long time. We talk a lot uh, 
That's what we do here on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. But I, I think we need an addendum because I think it's time to, that we wrap it up and then come back with an addendum, uh, like a pocket podcast addendum, uh, where we continue the story of the progenitors of the blues because we've got more stuff to tell people about, don't we? I think so. So, yeah, I say we do that addendum and come back and uh, rock that out. Hey, don't forget, you can email us at uh, imbalancehistory at gmail.com. We're on Facebook, the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. We're on Twitter. It's Imbalance Histo. Give us the R-Y. Twitter, come on. Come on, Twitter, so, R-Y. And, and you can also find us, of course, on the Pantheon Podcast Network. And if that's where you found us, please reach out and let us know where you are. Give us feedback on episodes on social media. Or go to our website, imbalancehistory.com. Get caught up on episodes and also leave comments for us. That's going to do it till next time when we do the addendum to the Robert Johnson and the progenitors of the blues. Brought to you by Crooked Eye Brewing in Hatboro. They got the cure for what ails you since 2014. It's a production of Dark Duck Media on the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus in the Darkest. And we'll catch you next time on the addendum to this episode on the imbalance history of rock and roll.